Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to Episode 8, Season 2 of The Shed Wireless coming up. You know it makes sense, the straight-talking ambassador and controversial social and football commentator Sam Kekovic is our special guest. The humble idea born down under has gone global and we catch up with our shedding brothers in the United States of America this episode. We talk attitudes to safety. Do you live for your high-vis or do you think it's all a big joke? Do not fear the beige bananas. We ask the doc about the realities of hearing loss. Spoiler alert, they're not beige bananas anymore. They're much more discreet than that. All that and a whole lot more ahead in this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney, and we are joined by the chairman of the Australian Men's Shed Association, Paul Sladden. Hello, sir. Hello, Aaron. How are you today? I am great. I need to apologise in advance to all the listeners because... At times during this broadcast, you may hear the torrential rain that is falling in our part of the world. It's absolutely flogging down, and my shed is pretty much a glorified shipping container, (laughs) and so it's really hard to keep the sound out, but uh, I think you can hear it in the background, can't you? I can. I can indeed, Aaron. We have had a lot of rain, and I understand there's a lot more coming for the east coast of Australia this summer. Nevertheless, let's get straight down to business. Do we have any dispatches from HQ this week? Uh, yes, Aaron. Um, the Sheds would have received notice of the annual general meeting happening on the 3rd of December. So just a reminder about that. And um, obviously, given uh, the uh, situation that we still find ourselves in, uh, that will most likely uh, will be done with people being able to zoom in to that annual general meeting. Perhaps a slight hybrid model. There could be some bodies in the room and then everyone else virtual maybe? Correct, correct. So depending on uh, restrictions in uh, various states, the AGM will be held in Newcastle, but uh, where people can attend in person, they obviously are quite welcome to attend, but others will have to um, come in via some technological means. Which I would suggest at the end of 2020 (laughs) is less of a challenge than it was at the start of 2020. I think we're all a little more match fit when it comes to that than we once were. Speaking of match fit, the Lambassador Sam Kekovic is with us this episode and you've followed him for a while. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, I'm a uh, a mad North Melbourne uh, supporter. For those people in the non-AFL states, Uh, North Melbourne, we had a very rough uh, season this season. Uh, We've lost half our players and we've lost our coach. But Slam and Sam, he wore the number four, the big ruckman for North Melbourne back in the uh, late 60s, 70s. And he certainly assisted in achieving our first AFL, well, VFL back then, Premiership against Hawthorne. So, uh, no, Slam and Sam, he's he's a beauty. Although he was born in WA... They actually claim him as one of their own up in Myrtleford, mm-hmm. up in northeast Victoria. And uh, hello to everybody at the Myrtleford Men's Shed. Uh, but he played for, Sam played for the uh, the Alpine Saints, they call themselves now. So uh, that's where he was drafted from to north, from the Myrtleford Saints uh, way back when. 
We'll hear a whole lot more about how all of that played out because he's obviously from migrant parents and they went chasing where the work was. Yeah, yeah. Well, Myrtleford was well known uh, as tobacco-growing country. And so there was a lot of migrants uh, that uh, moved up there. But, of course, with the um, removal of the tobacco, the uh, it's a very strong uh, wine-growing region now and uh, beautiful wines come out of that area. So, um, yeah. Look forward to that one, Aaron. Do we grow any tobacco in Australia still? Uh, not to my knowledge. I think it's all been banned. Yeah, right. It's all been bought out. Yeah, yeah, yep. fascinating. Yep. Not legally, anyway. Uh, uh, no, um, I'm sure there's yeah, one or two yeah. backyard plots somewhere. But you're, from a board perspective, in many ways, our guide in governance, and you're very thorough with all of the processes and governance. At a more shed level, there's all that stuff, but safety is at the forefront of a lot of what goes on there. And you must have seen in your work life some changes to safety over the years and various degrees of resistance to that change. Yeah, most definitely, Aaron. And Well, obviously, uh, people are far more safety conscious, uh, that they are far more aware. Um, But, yeah, look... uh, I suppose it's a bit of an Australianism, you know, she'll be right, mate. But uh, I, I, I'm pleased to see that that has improved over the years. Um, I mean, even with the COVID, um, you know, it's not directly OHS, but it's uh, uh, Occupational Health and Safety, but it is uh, certainly a, a safety concern. But look, all the sheds have the relevant signage now. They do induction programs. They, they do it very well. So... Um, it does vary from state to state in terms of what the uh, the laws are, but um, I suppose it really comes down to duty of care. And if there's one thing that uh, the blokes in the sheds are very good at, and that is making sure that they care for their fellow uh, shedders. It's a theme that keeps coming up, and we it's a useful way to understand it is like goalkeeping in soccer, football, is that when they put the scoreline on the news, you can't see the saves. And so I can't point to you the man who's walking around because we paid some attention to safety, but you can point to the corpse if you don't do it. And that's why it's a really difficult thing to quantify, but incredibly important. Yeah, most definitely, Aaron. It it really is a case of awareness more than anything else. And, uh, you know, that that duty of care that... um, that the shedders are are good at and look it's you know once upon a time maybe you know things got overlooked but uh nowadays people are far more conscious of it and uh you know the blokes aren't afraid to to call it out where they see some risky activity happening have you had much to do with the u.s shedding movement uh no i haven't i haven't i'm certainly uh you know from a second hand point of view uh, David Helmers, our CEO, he certainly keeps me well briefed with developments and uh, his regular discussions with them. But personally, I, I, I haven't. Aaron, no. No, it's obviously ripe with potential. But one of the things that I think is kind of interesting that comes out of the chat that you'll hear in this episode is actually how our societies, our civil societies function quite differently. When you see the way the sheds go about a community-based approach in Australia, replicating that in the US is not as straightforward as you would think. So it's one of the many interesting similarities and differences that I think everyone will get a taste of 
And when did you have your last hearing test? What? <laughs> Speak up, dear. <laughs> the last hearing test I think I had would have been um, actually over in Western Australia at the uh, National Men's Shed um, Health Expo. Oh. So, uh, so that's quite some time ago. And did you pass? Yes, passed with flying colours. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, however, I didn't pass the skin test that they did the uh, at the uh, at that same event. I had to go and see my doctor upon my return and uh, get a couple of things removed. So that was very good. But my hearing is fine. Thank you, Aaron. Excellent. Good. Well, you're well placed to listen to the remainder of this episode of The Shed Wireless. So let's get on with the show. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy. With... The Shed Wireless. I had to pick up a friend of my daughter's from school a few weeks back and drive both of them to her house. I swear it was no more than a kilometre. But we took the time and got the proper car seat and made sure it was properly installed and every safety precaution had been taken. And I remember thinking to myself, I used to hurt myself falling off the back of a car I was riding on. Riding on, not in. I would ride along on the boot of a car on the farm and a couple of times fell off and really hurt myself. And I was having a chuckle about our modern obsession with safety, that we live in this Nerf world. Now, I'm aware that this is a source of some tension in certain sheds. And AMSA Project Officer Stuart Torrance is with us once again to tease out this phenomenon. Hello, sir. G'day, Aaron. Do you remember sliding around in your parents' cars as a kid on the bench seats? My brother's ute. My brother's ute, we used to climb in the back and uh, go from uh, Castle Hill down to Parramatta and there were some real winding roads and he would just bang the car into the corners and and make us slide from side to slide. So were you in the tray or in the ute? In the tray. (laughs) Could you imagine, how old were you at the time? Oh, I'd have been 13, 14, something like that. Could you imagine that happening now? You'd be front page of the paper. Oh, no way, no way. And in fact, my older, one of my older brothers, uh, I remember um, climbing out of the, drive, uh, the passenger side window and actually surfing the roof of uh, his friend's Tirana as they went up to Bogola Beach. And he must have been up there for a good... Five, ten kilometres. It, it was incredible. And, and why we never got pulled over, I do not know. Prior to COVID, my previous existence used to require spending a lot of time in developing countries. And obviously, it's still quite common practice to pile everyone into the back of whatever sort of truck or you, you've got. And uh, there's part of me gets nostalgic for that and says, look at that, you know, that's fantastic and whatever (laughs) else. But let me tell you, they don't have bingles in those countries. If there's a car accident, five people die. It's that simple. And that's why we're in the world that we're in. So, I mean, you must have seen the attitude to safety beyond cars, in sheds, in workshops, all of that sort of thing. Safety has really changed over the decades. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I'm I'm a case in point, uh, Aaron, in in that regard. Uh, back when I first started working with sheds and um, working through um, uh, a project here in the Hunter, 
uh, I was the cluster coordinator and um, I was compiling and bringing together um, work health and safety um, points uh, for our work health and safety manual that we were putting together. And at the time I was um, working in my workshop doing a, a gift for one of our um, lovely uh, staff and, and um, yeah, I almost took the top off two fingers, uh, ended up going in and getting surgery. I now have a finger with no fingernail and the other one's grown back, but it's grown back bent and sort of curls over at the end. But what had happened, Aaron, is um, I wanted to hoe out a burl that I um, uh, had uh, got a hold of and make a really nice bowl out of it. And um, I saw the Arbitech and I thought, oh, that's expensive. I wonder if I can get something else from one of the other hardware stalls. Ducked down to the hardware store and found a biscuit joiner blade, only five teeth on the sucker, um, and went and put it on my grinder. But what didn't fit? The guard got in the way. So what did I do? I took the guard off. And um, I'm hoeing through this burl and wood chips are flying everywhere. There's dust everywhere. And all I felt was this tiny little touch on the tips of my fingers. And I put my hand underneath my um, uh, underneath my armpit on the other arm and went, that's not good. Um, and a friend rushed me up the hospital. And um, four days later, I'd had surgery. And, um, yeah, it, it wasn't good. It's so simple, so quick, and yet it was so silly what I did to actually put myself in, in that situation. I could have lost all my fingers on, on one hand quite easily. And being quite seriously maimed and had your quality of life very seriously affected. Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to, and, and I, I, I know and understand, in a lot of sheds, uh, these guys have uh, grown up without earmuffs, without eyeglasses, um, without any of the safety precautions that we now sort of insist on. Um, and they go, you know, I've done this all my life. And you usually have to raise your voice to them because they've done it all their life so now their hearing's gone. <laughs> um, or they're the ones wearing glasses because they can't <laughs> quite see better, as, as good as they used to. It's not a matter of insisting that, that these guys do uh, take safety precautions. It's a matter of their own health and welfare um, and the health and welfare of other people within the sheds. Having electrical cords strewn on the floor when they should be up over our heads so you can walk underneath them and they're not a trip hazard, all these things are important. And as we age, we're getting slower, we're getting lesser, our eyesight's probably not getting as, uh, any better. Uh, and we can trip over things quite easily. We can bump into things quite easily. We can bump into other people who are doing other things. And that's why we, you know, suggest that you put yellow walk lines on the floor of the, the workshop and have designated areas for machinery, designated areas for um, uh, other projects and, uh, and so on. It's, it's, not, it's not about irritating you or making life hard. It's, it's about safety for everybody within the shed. It's not just looking after one member, it's looking after all members. And I think it's beholden upon us all that if we see somebody not doing the right thing, then we should go over and just basically say, hey, I don't think that's 
safe. Can I show you a way that I think it would be better to do? And some of these um, old tradies that still have all their fingers, still have their ears and eyes and uh, and all their um, appendages, they're the ones to ask because they're the ones that have taken the care through the years. Funny that you say that. Two points popped into my mind as you were talking there. The first one is that safety is not about the best case scenario. Of course, most of the time, you'll be completely fine. Most of the time you're in a car with a seatbelt on, you don't need the seatbelt either. It's for the moment that you drop your guard, make a mistake, somebody calls, there's a bang that makes you jump, whatever it is. Safety is about the Swiss cheese, the perfect set of bad circumstances. That was the point one. The second point is, and again, we talk about this in development, is I can't show you the bloke who is alive because of safety procedures, but I can show you the blokes that were dead before we had them. Mm. <laughs> so it's the same with vaccinations. Yeah. Is you, It's a goalkeeping job. I can't show you the goals that were scored because they weren't scored. They were saved. Well, I can't show you the kids that have survived because of vaccinations, and I can't show you the blokes that are alive because of safety. But believe me, there would be fewer blokes if we didn't have it. Absolutely. A great analogy in that regard. The Spanner team uh, promote National Safe Work Month every October because safety is important within the sheds. We do that to raise awareness. Um, it's, it's working at heights, working on ladders, not just the machinery, not just eye protection, not just ears, but protection right through from, you know, um, not sticking the knife in the toaster. Uh, and the silly things that, that that we do and reducing the risk of work accidents is very important and uh, very high on our priority in sheds right across Australia. And the fact of the matter is nobody wants to spend a day or a night or a week or a month in hospital with one of their shed mates who made a silly mistake and did themselves a terrible disservice or worse still, nobody wants to be a shed where somebody copped a fatal injury because safety wasn't a priority. That stuff would hang in the mm. air for a long, long time, not to mention hang in the heart. Stuart Torrance, AMSA Men's Health Project Officer. You are a legend. Thanks for your wisdom as always. Thanks, Aaron. You take care, mate. Time for our Shed in the Spotlight. First up show and tell. In this episode, we're not profiling a shed in the spotlight so much as a country full of sheds in the spotlight. We have a founding director of the US MSA, the United States Men's Shed Association, but he's a little closer to Australia than you might at first think. Glenn Sears joins us from Honolulu. Aloha and welcome to the Shed Wireless. Pleased to be here. How did you first encounter shedding? I've always been a, someone who likes to make stuff and uh, although I'm originally from Hawaii, I was born here, we spent 40 years in the other rest of the world. Anyway, we moved back about nine or ten years ago and turns out that all of my old friends from the olden days that either died or moved on to someplace else. And I really felt lonely. Um, and one day my wife handed me a Rotarian magazine 
which uh, had a page bent over, bent over. She said, here, read this article. And it was a one-page article about men's sheds in Australia. And so I immediately said, boy, this is exactly what I want. And so I Googled men's sheds in Honolulu and got nothing. Men's sheds in Hawaii got nothing. Men's sheds in the USA got nothing. So I did the next best thing. Uh, I wrote to the guy in the article and he referred me to the Australian Men's Shed Association. And the first phone call I made was to uh, Mel White. And she said, well, we wondered when somebody was gonna call from your country. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, they, they provided me with lots of information and we started, we started a shed. See, in Australia, there are very few places now where if you walk into a town and say, we want to create a men's shed, that nobody knows what you're talking about. But I imagine some years ago in Hawaii, you had to explain the entire concept, did you? Oh, I te- I, I've explained the concept a thousand times. And how do you do that? I notice in your email footer that you very much lean on the slogan of shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. That's the important part of, of a men's shed. You know, I, I, you need some male company once in a while, no matter how successful your marriage, it's sometimes nice to get out and talk to some men. And that's what I find really good about the sheds. Why? Why do you think that matters? What do you get from male company that can't be replicated in female company? Beats the hell out of me. I don't know. It's just a different kind of a conversation. I can't tell you. It's different. So Mel is a very inspirational woman, but you're still a long way from that phone call to having an operational men's shed. What was the next step? The next step was I went to my wife's Rotary Club. And I if, if you throw a dollar in the calabash, you get to stand up and talk for one minute. So I gave a one-minute synopsis of what I visualized a men's shed was going to be. And I said I wanted to start one, and is there anybody here that's willing to help? And four different guys raised their hand, and we had our first meeting right after the Rotary meeting, and three of those four are still in the shed. What did that first shed look like? <laughs> we have a checkered history. We, we started out meeting in a, in a church. Then I found a place in a senior facility, a, a, a senior community center that's run by the Hawaii State, State Department of Parks and Recreation. And turns out that they used to have a, a woodworking shop, a really small one. And it had been vacant, not vacant, it had been not used in many, many years. And so they said, well, look, if you can if you can use this, why, why don't you see what you can do? So anyway, it was full of stored junk and it took two or three weeks to find new homes for all of it. And then I went in and still I didn't, you know, this is me, nobody else. Um, and I, uh, uh, they had some equipment in there, and I repaired some of it, and I taped up broken electric cords and 
got the thing working and got two or three other people in. And then one day, somebody from the, the higher ups in the parks department came by and said, you're using sharp tools. You can't do that. That was, that was a, a big disappointment. Yeah. So anyway, I just started looking up every empty building I could find in the city. And, and talking to every influential person I could find in the city. And it turned out that I, I talked, spoke to a, a state senator who really thought it was a good idea too. And one day he called me and said, I think I've got, I think I've got a shed for you. So he, I, I was to meet him on Saturday morning and uh, out by Sand Island Road. And he showed me this beautiful big, old warehouse, about 6,000 square feet, well lit, everything was great. And then he said, there is a problem. It doesn't have any water and it doesn't have any electricity. And the third thing is it's going to be torn down in November to make room for a container station. One of the good things about it is that we had parking for about 2,000 cars. Anyway, one of one of our early members, um, one of the people from the Rotary Club said he had a generator, and so we brought in the generator, and um, we started out by repairing abandoned bicycles for and giving them to needy kids. It turns out that there's an abund- abundance of abandoned bicycles in Hawaii because people move uh-huh. away from Hawaii, and it's too expensive to take a bike, so they just leave them. So anyway, that's how we started, and... Uh, I started running ads in Craigslist asking for for tools, and we were immediately inundated with tools. Uh, it was amazing how many widows don't know what to do with their husband's old tools. And when I hear, hear about us, they're more than pleased to have us take them off their hands. So that I understand this, you're putting an online ad, Craigslist, we have Gumtree in Australia, but that's the same concept. You're essentially put out a call, a digital call, and there was a whole bunch of women who'd lost their husbands and had sheds full of old tools that they were happy to give you. Yes, absolutely. Um, so anyway, that's how we started. We we remained in that shed and about 10 months until it was until the bulldozers were at the door then we were homeless i mean i was shopping for a, an old container to put our tools in really how many men had gotten involved by that point 35 or 40 and how had they discovered you i i, I used to run ads on, on again in craigslist they've got a community section and they've got a place for volunteers a place for for community service and, and some things like that. And I ran ads with, with pictures in those, and I got a lot of response. I'd get three or four responses on, per month. And and so it, it, it just started like that. And were they mostly men in a similar situation to you uh, yes. that were looking for a purpose, a connection? I think the biggest is the fact that we've got a workplace, a, a workshop, and you can come in immediately and, and do things or learn how to do things. And uh, I think that's the biggest draw. 
Were they ex-tradesmen by and large? You know, we have a huge variety. We've got people from the construction trade. We've got people who work for the in the Navy shipyard. Ah. We've got engineers. We've got a doctor. We've got several lawyers. It's it's across the spectrum, and uh, everybody. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. Just before we go any further, can I ask a vocabulary question? Yes. When I think of listening to uh, American culture on television or radio, I hear the phrase lawn locker used and I hear the phrase garage used or garage used. But is shed a commonly used phrase and a widely understood idea? Mm, A shed is typically a... 10-square-foot thing in the backyard to keep the lawnmower in. Yeah, so like a lawn locker, yeah? Yeah. So when you say a men's shed, are they imagining you all <laughs> being shoved in the lawn locker? <laughs> no, I think the, the, the normal response is men's shed. What is that? And that's your entree to explain the concept. Yes. One of the big problems here, and I'm sure, I'm sure it's that way everywhere when you first start out, is that absolutely no one has any idea what you're talking about. We're three years old now, maybe a little over. We have another warehouse shed that we think we may have rather permanently, uh, even though we're there by adverse possession. We reach the tipping point where we get three or four or five people every month walk in the, in the shed and say, I, read, I heard about the men's shed. What, what do you guys do? So, uh, so you know, we we were up to 135 members when the coronavirus hit us. Wow! And are they all working on individual projects, or are you still doing the bike thing? What What's the focus? It's uh, it's it's a bit complicated, but um, we do we do everybody does some individual things. Certainly, there's a lot of that that goes on. We also do some community things. We built a playhouse for a preschool. We built really nice picnic tables for elementary schools. We've done a lot of those kinds of things. And that's a combination of wood and metal? Um, almost all wood. Okay. Almost all wood. We were really fortunate because one of our members told me one day, I'll, I'll, I'll give you $10,000 if I can tell you what you use it for. And I said, Sure. And he said, well, I want you to buy a 52-inch professional saw stop <laughs> with a router and a dust collector. So we, we did, and uh, that's the finest piece of a machine we've got. How do you do financially? Because we have as many financial models as we have sheds in Australia. Everybody is following their own path. How do you keep the doors open? Well, we charge $50 a year. Right. And that basically pays for our insurance. As I said before, we get a lot of tools even yet. And so when they come in, we sort them out. And if it's something we can use, we add it to our tool supply. If it isn't, we clean it up and try to sell it. So we we get a fair amount of money from that. We also sell, at Christmas time, we sell a bunch of stuff that we made, mostly very nice cutting boards. Actually, that's an... Basically, that's enough money to get on with. Um, we don't have any expenses. 
Well, we do. We have an electric bill. It's about $75 a month. Recently, um, I got us a $7,500 grant, and and that's been really helpful. Uh, we ran everything with extension cords running all over the place. This is a really old warehouse. Um, I suppose it was built before World War II, um, and it has... It has some skylights that you can't see through anymore. It has a roof that's 30 or 40 feet above the floor, um, and it's dark. So anyway, um, we got this money to run electric wires, to completely wire the place, all the workbenches, all the tools, all the, um, the dust collectors, and we are currently putting in... Um, 10 300 watt led floodlights so we think the place is we're doing that while we're essentially closed up and i think that's really going to make a big difference in the place that'll be amazing you do know the downside is you'll be able to see your work more clearly and therefore see every imperfection that has to be fixed right <laughs> it's the same idea i'm quite handsome until i put my glasses on <laughs> we, we have some guys who come into the shed and say you know i really don't know anything about making stuff but mm. show me what you do and so we put them into a a, a, a training program uh, we have other guys who, who are there who are absolutely master woodworkers. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's been an amazing trip. Are you hungry for a permanent home? It sounds like you're investing a lot of time, energy, and actual resources into this location, but there isn't certainty there. Might there be a permanent home? Well, originally they told us we could have this place for 6 to 12 months, if we would remove a thousand square foot concrete refrigerator slab and move out all the junk that the previous tenant left when he died. Um, so we did all of that and, uh, and they haven't come back to, uh, well, they did. After a year was up, they said, well, maybe we should make a formal agreement here. And so, We've got an agreement, but basically the agreement says it's month to month. Okay. There is no, there are no plans to demolish these old warehouses. Um, and now after the coronavirus, the state's not going to have enough money to do anything. So we, we sort of see we've got a, probably a 10-year time horizon at this point. What has the coronavirus done to the reality? We hear a lot about mainland USA, but not so much about Hawaii. How are y'all doing there? Well, for a long time, March, April, May, even June, we were we were in single-digit cases. And then in July, it started working up, and, and now we're getting more than 100 a day. As far as the shed was concerned, well, the state shut things down really early closed down just basically everything. And that's how that's how they got the, the low numbers. One of the things we have, we, we have a lot of people coming in and out of Hawaii. It's a major tourist destination, and but they shut down all the airlines and they closed all the hotels. So that really kept it down. 
And, and of course, they told us we had to close down the shed. So we did. So the shed has essentially been closed until, I guess, about a month ago when we decided we would open it to do work on the shed and we would allow five people at a time. We've been having a lot of discussions in Australia about what the implications for the shedding movement might be of COVID and there are a few possibilities. We could have more younger men because unemployment goes up. We could have just a general influx because people are underemployed. What are you anticipating will happen post-COVID for the Honolulu shed? You know, until we can see about opening the shed up normally, mm. it's uh, nothing new is going to happen. No. Is there a time frame for that, do you think? <laughs> um Mid-year 2021. Do you use the phrase in the US, how long is a piece of string? Yes. How long is a piece of string? When are you reopening in full? Huh? So anyway, we're, we, we, we are having a Saturday uh, Zoom meeting with different people taking the, the lead in telling them something about themselves or something. And that's been that's been good. Nice. We, we, we stay in contact by phone a lot. And and it's a little island, so... So you are literally and figuratively an island there and are doing some great work at that community level. Can we speak a little bit about the USMSA? What is happening on the mainland and organisationally, how are you progressing? Well, I, I think it all started with John Evoy contacting Mark Winston and Mark, Mark was involved in opening a Canadian shed, and he lives in Canada, but he's an American, a U.S. citizen. And, of course, John Avoy is from the Irish Men's Shed Movement. Yeah, uh, and he gave Mark my name and, so, and Phil Johnson. So the three of us got together, and we started the USMSA. Problem with name recognition in Hawaii um, for USMSA, it's many times worse, and that's been that's been one of the things we've 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 tried to do is to get newspaper articles, um, to get some something on TV. I keep telling them if we all we need to do is get a segment on sixty minutes some Sunday night, and we're we've got it made. Um, but that's clearly not going to happen. So anyway, that we started out just. Uh, figuring out what we had to do to make an organization. And then we started looking for, well, and putting together information that we could give to, to different sheds. Uh, we were pretty lucky early on in that the Wall Street Journal did an article on us. And, uh, and that got us a whole flood of people. Um, but it turns out every one of them wanted to join a shed. Nobody wanted to start one. Uh, we also had an a 10-minute segment on the NBC Today show, morning show, and that gave us a bunch of people as well. So that was where we started, and we started build, building a one shed at a time. We've, it, it takes a special kind of a person to start a shed. It's Just because you want to join a shed doesn't mean that you're going to, you're willing to start one. No, and I don't need to tell you, it's a significant commitment, isn't it? Absolutely, and... and mm. It's a long-term commitment, and you've got to be willing to put up with a lot of disappointments in the early days. 
and anyway, it, it's been it's been growing and and I, I'm sometimes discouraged that it's not growing faster than it is. But I think we've got about 19 sheds right now, and just before the pandemic hit, we had interest from about eight or nine people and organizations to start sheds. But as a result of the shutdown, uh, they haven't they haven't done anything. No. Starting starting a shed during a pandemic is almost impossible. Indeed, and yet I can't help but feel that post pandemic again, whenever that is the appetite and the need is going to be greater than ever. Can you give us some sense of the geographical diversity of those 19? So you're in the far west in Hawaii and Honolulu. Where else are they? State of Washington, Minneapolis has three sheds, Minneapolis area, um, one in Chicago, one in Florida, one in in Vermont. Um, they're, They're scattered everywhere. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason about, except for the ones in the Minneapolis area who, where Phil Johnson lives. He started a, a cluster of, of sheds there. What's your dream for the future? Um, a thousand sheds. That's not unrealistic. No, I don't think it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I don't think I'm up to that, that kind of a, uh, an endeavor because I'm, I'm 86. So, but. Mark Winston and the other guys—they're—they're really—they're ready to go and and are enthusiastic. Well, and this is the lightning in a bottle, if you want to put it colloquially. This is what I find perpetually fascinating, if you want to put it more academically, is the chaos theory (laughs) behind men shedding is that these are individual actions at a volunteer level that are self-organizing and yet are part of a greater conceptual movement. And so it isn't like you would have to start a thousand sheds. You just have to spark a thousand ideas, as it were, or one idea a thousand times more properly is the way to put it, isn't it? Absolutely, that's true. What about a little closer to home? What would you like to see happen in Honolulu before you're done? Well, I'd like to see sheds on on, on each of the other islands. I ha- I've found a number of people who are interested in shedding there, but I they nobody has actually taken the big step of, of starting starting a shed. I hope that that will improve when when, when the pandemic is over. Mm. We also we probably should have more than one shed here in Honolulu because we have people who are traveling from the other side of the island every every Saturday to be in the shed so yes we we can certainly do with with a shed we we do have a a second shed um it's in a senior uh living facility and uh it's in a garage and uh it's it's fairly new so i'm i keep having conversations with the guy who two guys who run it but of course not much is happening No, 2020, the year everybody's life went on hold, but it sounds like the superstructure is there and you will probably do a hell of a lot of good on the other side of this thing because there's going to be a high level of need. 
Glenn, please continue to look after yourself. Stay safe. Thank you for being somebody who took shedding to a whole new part of the world and continues to do so. And please know that all of your brothers and sisters, for that matter, down under uh, supporting your endeavours, sending out our very best wishes to come through this pandemic safely and with minimal damage. And we feel a brotherhood in shedding across that vast distance of water. Thanks for being on the Shed Wireless. Okay, well, please give our aloha to the all people there and tell them that they're always welcome to come to our shed in Honolulu. Yeah, if I could visit any shed in the world, Honolulu is going to be right up there. <laughs> Thanks so much, Glenn Sears, who is joining us from Honolulu, a founder of the very first shed in the U.S., and now a part of the USMSA. Would you like to put your shed in the spotlight? Just contact us via email, theshedwireless at mensshed.net, and we'll take care of the rest. Winning an AFL Premiership with North Melbourne, being their three-time leading goal kicker and winning the Sam Barker medal would be fame enough for most, but I can almost guarantee that that is not what you remember our next guest for. Some of you will remember him from the sports panel show, The Fat. Some from PTI on ESPN or his many radio shows. But I think most of you will know him as the Lambassador, the straight-talking old-school ranter from the famous and infamous Australian Lamb ads. He is the great Sam Kekovich. G'day and welcome to The Shed Wireless. Ah, thank you, and what a flattering introduction. I think I'll leave now. <laughs> I think it's a, I realise it's going to be a dichotomy, but I think it's all going to be downhill now, so. <laughs> hey, how many times a day does someone say to you, you know, it makes sense? Well, I cut that uh, on a regular basis, but more importantly, I say, there he is, the lamb chop, or there's the lamb man. And who in their wildest dreams would have thought that I needed to pursue an education in my life, kick a bag of wind around, and uh, obviously acquired a, a modicum of infamy. But at the end of my days, well, not the end of my days, but certainly approaching the Fridays and Saturdays of my lifetime, of my lifetime I'm called the, uh, the lamb chop. Anyhow, <laughs> so be it. How did the whole lamb thing come about? Uh, very simple, Aaron. They're looking for someone with uh, erudition and good looks. <laughs> and as you know, in this country, it's a pretty limited field. No. <laughs> They had to go all, through A, B, C, all the way till they got the K, did they? Uh, let me tell you, it was a masterpiece of a uh, the former marketing manager of the uh, Meat and Livestock Association, who was the governing body, obviously, as the name uh, implies. And uh, he liked what he saw in the fat. I used to deliver a monologue, if you recall, in the fat. I do. Which used to go for a minute or a minute and a half, and I'd take the piss out of various... Uh, yeah, you know, nondescripts and, you know, minorities that would permeate our society and bring us into disrepute. And uh, I looked down the barrel and I delivered some of my uh, my, uh, my best lexicon. And he thought, well, gee, this has got some potential. Perhaps uh, we can shy away from the commercials, which had a propensity, as you know, to be sort of bland and trite. So he thought, this might be a bit of a shock value, someone that can, you know, deliver down the barrel and tell people what it's like to be an Australian and to eat lamb. And anyhow, as I say in the classics, Aaron, uh, the rest is history. 
one in a million work and this took off like wildfire. It really has entered into the popular consciousness. Talking about the rest is history. I'm really fascinated about when you talk about it's weird that you're going to wind up being known as the lamb man, but I mean, it's pretty weird that you would play a sport called AFL as well because four or five years before you were born, your parents were about as far from Australia and AFL as anyone could imagine. Yes, well, they were forced out of the country, out of Yugoslavia, as it was known then, uh, you know, escape war toward Europe. Uh, they were obviously opposed to communism and Nazism. My parents, uh, you know, saw a family shot. Uh, and there they were, a young couple embarking on a whole new adventure. Didn't know what to uh, speak the language. Anyhow, they found their way to a place in the Middle East. Uh, my brother was born, uh, my elder brother Brian was born in a camp called El Arish in Egypt. And in those days, you either migrated to, to two places, either went to Canada and America or to uh, Australia. We found our way to Australia, to Fremantle, where there was a lot of other Yugoslav people as well. And anyhow, cut long story short, we worked uh, on tobacco in a place called Manjimup, where I was born in Perth. And then in 56, the year of the Olympics, uh, we crossed the Nullarbor to the eastern seaboard, to uh, Gumbau near Kahuna in the Murray River, and then back to Murdoch. My father was uh, fairly adept at tobacco growing. We had a sponsor in uh, uh, other English clubs in uh, Western Australia, became proficient in tobacco growing. He got a uh, he got a, an offer to share, share crop in uh, Gunbow and then in uh, Myrtleford, mm. where I spent the majority of my upbringing. And, uh, and that was it in essence. But, uh, you know, in those days, what a brave move, you know, two, two terribly young people, you know, forced off their, out of their own country, didn't know a word of the, a word of the, uh, the diction. But you know what? They worked the fields 20 hours a day. Uh, there was no, uh, there was no welfare. There was no, uh, childcare. They embraced the, uh, the culture. They were eternally grateful for the opportunity. They learnt the language. They became true Australians. And uh, to this day, to the eternal, my mother just passed away. Dad passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, they are a great example of someone that embraced the opportunities of a new country. They didn't bring their baggage with them, didn't try to uh, force their ideology on anyone else. They just worked their butt off and became truly proud Australians, which I guess is a spin-off of what you're talking to now. <laughs> Quite right. So what, what values did they give you? If I said to you, you know, as you farewelled your dad or your mum, uh, yeah. what did they leave with you? Yeah, my word, in those days, and it was fairly prevalent, it was good old-fashioned values. There was no excuse for bad manners. Be eternally grateful for what you've got. Follow your dreams. There are plenty of opportunities here. There are no restrictions. But be a decent, honourable person. Now, I'm not so sure I fulfilled all those, <laughs> all those uh, demands from them or their set of values. But uh, I was very, very fortunate. I did have a wonderful upbringing, and uh, it certainly set a, a very strong foundation for me moving forward. And that was that was it. They were they were, they were just fantastic. So this might seem like a strange question, but given that you were born in Australia but two migrants, did you always feel Australian or did you feel like the son of a Yugoslav migrant? No, I embraced Australia. I mean, so sport's a wonderful catalyst to uh, transcend 
yeah. all those bigotries and prejudices that might prevail. I mean, I say not that I wasn't subjected to, you know, a lot of name calling and dagos and fags and, but you know, sport was a great leveler and uh, I embraced sport. I loved it. And no, my parents uh, were very, very conscious of the fact that, you know, we were in a new country and it was imperative that we embraced the cultures, whilst bearing in mind, we're extremely proud of our heritage. Mm. I still speak very fluent Yugoslavian. Is that uh, true? And it is true. Yeah, right. It is true. My word, I speak fluent. And we retain those that uh, those values of that heritage, I mean. Mm. We're certainly proud of that. We're also very conscious of being true Australians. And we did. Uh, and we certainly embraced that. And, uh, yeah, as I have the aforementioned. Mm. You know, my family became very, very proud Australians and grateful. Can you remember when you realised that AFL might be a career, that you could make it? Oh, well, you're always hopeful. I'm going to say, you know, as kids growing up in Australia, in rural Australia, in the 50s, even today, probably not to the same extent. But there was a manic obsession from all, you know, to play at the very elite. Mm. You know, our heroes were all those great names, the Barassis, the Wittons, you know, the Skiltons, you know, the Polly Farmers of the world. And you always aspire to something like that, you know, whether that opportunity would arise or whatever, but as the years wore on, and then I had that opportunity, you know, in my early uh, teens, or mid-teens, you know, to show a bit of talent, uh, which captured the eye of the uh, of the recruiters. Anyhow, I found my way to, uh, to, the, uh, to the big league, and uh, all of a sudden I was rubbing shoulders with, uh, with my heroes. I had no idea that that would be my destination or my destiny, but uh, I was certainly uh, an aspirant. I love my sport. I love my footy. You mentioned Barassi as being somebody you admired. That wasn't always evident. Well, uh, no, it was. It was even when he was my mentor, even though we had plenty of run-ins. But I'm not, I'm not, the run-ins weren't as a result of any angst. Mm. I think we're always jostling and testing each other. I think uh, Ron looked upon me in the same way that Norm Smith looked upon him. He realised that I had a pretty thick car hide and that I could cop. Let me tell you, today they'd be scarpering for the HR department. <laughs> if you can imagine the tirade of invective and unbridled abuse that was showered upon us and on me, let me assure you, they'd be in tears today. They were the contemporaries. But anyhow, he was a great man. He is still a great man. And I see him regularly and... Uh, there's another wonderful opportunity. You talk about a uh, an opportunity in life. Mm. You know, coming across the path of the great Ronald Dale Brassi and, you know, having, a, having an, a remarkable influence on you. It's interesting what you say there, and I worry a little bit about this as sport isn't at the centre of the growing up experience in the way that it was. There's still plenty of it about, of course, but one of the most valuable things that you learn from sport is that idea that it isn't personal, that you and I can go out there and absolutely give it to each other, but I am playing the ball, not the man, or it's it's not about your personality or how I feel about you it's about the competitive nature and that can be a hard thing to learn everyone seems to take everything personally now uh, that's a very good way of putting it Aaron I mean so I've been a long time critic of uh, you know the AFL for all those reasons you know yeah you know, we saw the church I said you know we had, we had we have a lot of problems 
you know, when the church and the state don't separate, there's a heck of a lot of problems. Same as when sport and politics don't separate. You know, sports are wonderful vehicles, as I mentioned earlier, that can act as a wonderful catalyst to overcome and transcend those bigotries and prejudices that are prevalent in our lives, in our society. And, you know, sport to me was always, and even today, is someone where I go and meet my mates, forget about the issues of today and enjoy myself. I don't want to go to sport and be indoctrinated with ideologies, which is probably the case in a lot of instances. And it's a reflection on our great society where sport now has become, in a lot of instances, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the voice of so, many, uh, of so many issues, which is so wrong. And it's a reflection on our society, as I said, in a lot of instances. And people, we've allowed ourselves to dumb down. You know, sport was designed to get out there and enjoy yourself, and it's a very Australian thing. But unfortunately, it's been utilised by a small minority to act as a, a guide or a guiding light, a guiding stick to further promote their own ideologies or, or their own grievances. There's always that perpetual, you know, aggrieved group in our mass that will always u- utilise it for the wrong reasons. I know this is an impossible question. It's really only a thought experiment. But do you think you would have been better or less suited to the game today? Oh, look, it's always subjective, you know, mm. but I, you know, as, as, a, as a smart man once said, uh, you know, if you're a good player or a good performer in any era, it's better to assume that you'd be a good performer mm. in a contemporary era. Mm. You know, good players find a way mm. of adjusting. Good people in any in any uh, field of endeavour will always find a way to reach the uh, reach the pinnacle. There may be need to there may be a need to tweak and adjust, but the good the good ones always do, and that's been proven time and time again. There is a bit of sameness about the athletes. See, given your physique and the way you played, it's not a long walk to imagine you doing it, but it is harder to imagine somebody of, say, Barassi's stature uh, making it in the modern time. Is that a fair observation or not? See, where the rules have changed, and this is where our society has changed, you know, in my day, uh, regardless of height or weight, you know, our game was regarded as very much elite. Mm. You know, now the, uh, the, uh, those, that minority group, that inner city progressives and uh, left-wing bullies, civil libertarians and tree huggers, they just want everyone to be on a, on a, on a, on a comparable level. So one suit fits all. Mm. I keep telling them at the elite level of any sport, you know, little Johnny's going to get hurt if he doesn't have peripheral vision. Mm. And if you're a big, strong man like Ron Barassi, you're going to use your weight and you're going to use it to your advantage. And if you're a big, tall man of six foot eight, you're going to use that to your advantage to tap the ball or mark the ball. You know, now they adjust the rules so that they outlaw the guys that have had certain advantages because mm. they want to make it one suit fits all, which is really the, uh, when you look at it from a political uh, perspective, you know, all these protests that are taking place, it's got nothing to do with what they're actually protesting against. It's all about the world order. They want to make it a one big world welfare system where everyone gets the same, it's decentivated. And uh, they think everyone's going to be happy, which is ridiculous. 
There's a lot of mythology about it. How close were you to ever playing gridiron or rugby league? I know, I was pursued for a while. I looked, you know, in my day, uh, I think, oh, Colin Ridgway. Mm. He was the first to win as a kicker. Then I was, a, John Tilbrook uh, from Melbourne went over as a kicker, I think, in Boston. But then I was approached, yeah, for the New York Jets to be a kicker. In fact, I had a couple of trials here in Australia, but without going into too much detail, but they're looking for hang time and distance. Mm. Anyhow, I, uh, I was fairly good at it. But unfortunately, I had a very bad car accident just on the eve of. Mm. But I don't know whether anything would have would have evolved from it. But it was a nice little dream and a nice little thought that I could have been with Joe Namath in New York. I think it was all a bit fanciful, but, uh, you know, what the heck, the dream's a dream. You wouldn't be the Lambassador if that's the case, so... Well, what? you never know. It might be promoting Texas beef. <laughs> <laughs> a New York steak. <laughs> a New York steak, Aaron. Yeah, I don't know. No, that's a funny thing, as you know. Are you okay with me mentioning that you just turned 70? How do you feel about that? Oh, mate, age is totally irrelevant to me. Is that right? Tell you, I feel fantastic. I am 70, but uh, look, I've just got out of hospital with a lot of knee surgery and a lot of ankle uh ankle surgery, but uh, I've had every part of my anatomy tested, backwards, frontwards, forwards, and I am just uh, touch wood on top of the world health-wise. I'm reasonably astute. My uh, faculties, uh, I have touch wood. Uh, I'm relatively, uh, I'm, I'm well-read. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I... Uh, I still have some good communicative skills. I still see a lot of people. I'm still fairly active. Uh, so, yeah, life's good. When I get released from this world's most livable prison that we live in here in Victoria, I'll be fine. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be out of solitary in the not-too-distant future in that part of the world. How much have you changed over the years? Do you still think you're the same bloke that you were in the VFL or are you significantly different? I don't give it too much time. I don't devote much time. There's not too many rear vision mirrors in my house. Yeah, fair juice. Uh, look, I'd be fair to say that I have. You know, obviously, I've matured a lot. You know, during my earlier days, I thought I was probably a bit full of truth. I probably didn't take responsibility all that well. I was uh, probably undisciplined to a degree. I thought it'd be never ending, that wonderful roller skater. But as time wears on, you realise if you slide down that slippery banister of life, pulling splinters out of your ass, <laughs> that, you know, you're slightly more vulnerable and fragile and you want to go to children and all of a sudden all the variables of life become fairly pronounced. But uh, I do believe that I've combated it fairly well. I've uh, become a better person. I've become more responsible. I've become more diligent. Uh, I actually, you know, embrace work. I used to... You know, I'd better say during my playing days that I had an aversion to you know, nine to five because we worked in those days. Mm. I was just full bore into the glam, the bright lights and the neon signs <laughs> and uh, and the sport. Yeah, it was a wonderful existence. But of course, as we know, it doesn't always, uh, it doesn't last forever. But I was never, I was never, uh, I was never, uh, never depressed by it all. I'd probably be better thing to be perfectly candid with you, to be implicitly honest with you, if anything, I felt a bit of guilt because of the enormous contribution my parents had made in the upbringing that I had. To think that I hadn't fully achieved in their eyes, not probably not in their eyes, but in the eyes of many, you know, my ultimate potential, whatever that might have been, 
that really disappointed me. I had some, uh, you know, some deep thinking. I had moments of solace there, and that was my motivation. I think in the last forty years, you know, to really put my head down and tail up and and really aspire to somewhere, you know, which is regarded as you know moderately successful. Did your mum and dad speak about that before they died? No, no, no. They were always very positive. You know, there was always a subtle cryptic clue <laughs> as to, you know, why have you done this or why have you done that? But never berated in any, you know, in any uh, forcible manner. No, I meant more the other way in their latter years. Did they go, you turned out all right, mate? Oh, yes, my word. They would always give me a, uh, a pat, you know, where it was due. Yeah, they would compliment you. It wasn't all one-way traffic, even though they come from a European background, which tends to be a bit harsher than uh, than the Australian way of life. But uh, no, in latter, you know, they embraced the culture in the latter years where they thought, you know, a, a lick of the ice cream was due, they would certainly give it to you. <laughs> Excellent. Nice way of putting it. So what's motivating you going forward? What's left to do? What's motivating me going forward? I guess... You know, pure enjoyment. I just enjoy what I do. I've been very, very grateful. I get out of bed and I do things that I enjoy and get paid for. Mm. Not all the time. You get to, you do a lot of good work for, uh, and that always gives me a great deal of enjoyment to be able to be, uh, to be able to put a smile on people's faces, to be able to do something for others that they derive some enjoyment, to help someone, to be in a position. And to be a better person myself, where I can influence and you know uh, create something for someone else, I think that's the uh, fellowship. I think that's a great enjoyment, and I think that'll be the great asset. I hope when we come out of this turmoil without a COVID, I think the one asset I hope the world at large will embrace is fellowship. We realise the what's important in life is family, uh, our friends, being able to converse sit around the table together and, you know, having three houses and 28 portfolios and eight cars perhaps is not that important. And we get rid of some of the avarice or greed and get back to a simple way of life that I remember growing up as a kid. Beautiful note to leave our conversation on. The good news is you have spread more joy and love and wisdom today. The bad news is you're not going to make a buck for this hour, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Aaron, let me tell you, the bane of Western society is always the worship of the almighty buck. <laughs> but as you know, you get far greater rewards sometimes when you don't end up with a wage packet. That is exactly you right. Know, when you, you look at it long term and, you know, uh, I know you do some wonderful work, you know, with uh, depression and uh, men's health, which is uh, an ever-evolving issue. Not only I mean to say men, I'm sort of women as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's great to be able to do a little bit of good work and not always look at the, put your hand in your pocket and thinking oh, there's a few shekels there for us. Well, we appreciate the spirit of that in your time today. I've enjoyed your work from afar for a very long time. Been a thrill to spend a few minutes with you. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it to all your, uh, I know all your podcast listeners. I know you're very successful. So just remember, as the uh, as the Tibetans always used to say, eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love immeasurably. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs>
Nailed it with Rip Woodchip. G'day, Sitters, Rip Woodchip here. How you all going today? I'm just out the front waiting for me son to arrive to give me a hand to fix the blooming TV antenna. I haven't been able to pick up a decent channel for about a week now, and the missus has been forcing me to watch her box sets of DVDs every bloody night. So he's coming along to give me a hand, partially for the help, but also because if I get up there and I can't fix the bloody thing, and I'm forced to watch one more episode of Anne of Green Gables, I'm liable to jump off the bloody roof. It should be a quick fix. I know what to do once I'm up there. It's just getting up there's a bit of an issue. Not as steady on a ladder as I used to be. Mind you, to do a two-minute job is going to take the best part of an hour with the young fella helping me. No, not because he's a few sandwiches short of a picnic or anything. He's just a real stickler to the rules when it comes to safety. And it takes more time to set up than to do the bloody job. He's got to use his own ladder, ladder clamps, harnesses, ropes, not to mention his boots and his gloves and all the other clobber. Just to tighten a bit of bloody wire. <laughs> Back in my day, I would have shot up there with a boost from the neighbour, standing one foot on a wheelie bin and the other on a couple of milk crates, in nothing but a pair of stubbies and me Japanese safety boots. Pliers in mouth. I'd fix what had to be fixed, and be back down on the lounge watching back episodes of Kingswood Country in a jiffy. But saying that, there was a couple of times I did come a gutser and had some pretty close calls. Not to mention some of the stuff we got up to as kids. Truth. I remember belting around the back paddock in me old man's FJ before I could hardly even see over the dashboard, dragging me younger brother around on an upside-down car bonnet. Jeez, we had some fun, but it really could have gone pear-shaped a couple of times. Luckily, just a few scrapes and bruises, and maybe the odd broken bone, but we live to tell the tale. I mean, I never wrapped my own kids up in cotton wool, but jeez, the missus would have shot me if I'd let them get up to that kind of shenanigans. Yeah, I've been pretty lucky in my time, I guess, considering all the stupid stuff I've done over the years. Back in the day, there was no such thing as work, health and safety, and we'd do some pretty crazy stuff just to get the job done as quick as possible and to get a few more dollars in our pockets. And looking back, I can't believe I didn't get killed and also can't believe I still got all six fingers on each hand. Yeah, I've fallen through ceilings, rolled tractors, sliced myself open, and even given myself the odd short circuit. And back then, the only thing in the first aid kit was a couple of band-aids, some electrical tape, and a packet of Panadol. It's definitely a different approach nowadays, and all for the better, I guess. I'm sure there's been many a good man lost through his own or someone else's stupidity. But they say now, proper preparation prevents poor performance. It ain't worth getting anyone hurt just to get home a little quicker. Better to go home late than to not go home at all, I reckon. Even down to the shed, we've all got the proper rules and regulations in place about using all the gear and whatnot. But it's got to be all for one and one for all, no matter how bloody experienced you think you are. Some blokes still like to carry on a little bit about it, but I'm sure they'd feel pretty guilty if something they did got someone else hurt. So you just got to suck it up and do the right thing. And like I've said many a time before, the longest way around is sometimes the fastest way home. Literally. Anyway, fellas, looks like old Inspector Gadget's coming up the driveway now. Better get me shirt and hat on before I cop a mouthful. He's just as bad as his mother, bless him. Anyway, fellas, catch you next week. See ya! Got a question? Ask the doc. Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. My wife said to me the other day, you weren't even listening to me just now, were you? 
And I thought to myself, geez, that's a weird way to start a conversation. Selective hearing is a vital skill within any successful marriage, but actually not being able to hear, that is a real problem. So how is your hearing going? Do you even know how your hearing is going? Find yourself turning the TV up and then turning it back down when the ads come on? Can the neighbours three doors up hear me right now because you've got your radio turned up so loud? Do you have those sort of bells in your ears at two o'clock in the morning? Today, we're going to ask the doc about our hearing. Our go-to guy here on the Shed Wireless is, as always, Professor Rob McLaughlin, AM, Medical Director at Healthy Mail, among many other things. And today he's referring us to a specialist as well. Dominic Power is an audiologist at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the Shed Wireless, Dominic. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Rob, tell me if I'm wrong with this. I seem to feel like we monitor our eyes well and we can tell when focus is leaving us or when our arms aren't getting long enough to read the newspaper. But (laughs) hearing doesn't seem quite so easy to monitor. Am I right with that? Yeah, I reckon the sort of thing it can creep up on you until it gets quite significant. You're likely to just sort of not pay attention or or move on. But in that period of time, you might be missing out on a lot of stuff that you should be hearing. So it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? And there's anxiety around hearing problems because, well, A, it's a bit of an admission of that old cliche that you're not listening. But B, I think Mm. everybody has horror memories of the day when hearing aids looked like giant speakers strapped to the side of your head and people, frankly, would rather be deaf than have that on certain occasions. But I think Mm. we've moved on a little bit from there, haven't we, Rob? Yeah, yeah, I think Aaron, you're you're right. Uh, uh, there was that sort of notion of great big clunky things that really only stone deaf people would be wearing, but in fact, uh, it's much more subtle and and, and consumer friendly and usable than it, than it once was. And so, I'm I'm very keen to hear about you know, how we should learn about our hearing, uh, when, how to test it, and what we we can then do to to uh, assist. I mean, I, you know, I I see friends and particularly some uh, relatives who actually miss out on a lot of conversation. You can see them withdrawing because they can't quite catch it and they sort of sit there and you know that it has something to say normally but that they're not and I think that's got a lot to do with it. They they get almost a sense of isolation from it. Dominic, there's a standard joke that, you know, when you hit your 42nd, 43rd birthday, you suddenly have a close relationship with your optometrist that it's just a marker of time that your eyes will eventually dim in some way. Is it the same with our ears or can an 80-year-old and an 18-year-old have the same level of hearing? Um, Aaron, they they can have the same level of hearing, although it is either very unlucky for the 18-year-old or very fortunate for the 80-year-old to have uh, the the, either the very good or the very bad hearing. Um, Generally, once you hit your sort of late 50s, early 60s, that's when we would be anticipating that your hearing is starting to take a bit of a dive. So, you know, I, I put my hand up. I, I went and got my eyes checked when I hit 40 and, you know, I was sick of squinting at, at, um, at the, the books and I was, you know, asking people to read serial numbers of things for me because I just couldn't do it. Um, glasses, they're fantastic. They make so much easier to to read things and make reading much more enjoyable. And, and you know, when you've, your hearing is slowly sliding off, um, 
it's human nature to blame everybody else. So you know, we often get people saying that, you know, everybody started to mumble or, you know, the, the, the news readers I can hear, but everybody else is just, they just suddenly have, have lost the art of being able to speak properly. And, you know, they've just, it, it is, it's, nobody ever makes the um, the connection with their own hearing being the, the culprit because they've been able to, push it off and, and fake it for so long. They've been able to successfully blame their wife who yells at them from the back of a cupboard at the other end of the house. And it, there's nothing really that's, that's stood up and said, Hey, actually your hearing is not what it used to be. Maybe you should get it checked. Generally, do you have to have an exposure or an incident? That is to say you've worked in an industrial area for a long time and that's what wears your hearing down or you've had some sort of trauma or do ears just wear out like other parts of the body? They do wear out, um, but there are injuries that you can sustain. So there, there you know, might be a few shedders out there who have uh, used a lot of power tools and without hearing protection, power tool use even for a short period of time can be potentially damaging and, and damaging of a permanent nature to the hearing. So um, it, it, again, there's some genetic uh, reasons why some people will have, you know, 20 years on tools and have no hearing damage at all. Whereas somebody can be, you know, six months into an apprenticeship and then having, having a significant hearing loss as a result of the same kind of noise exposure. So it's, it's always good to get it checked out just so that you, you know where you stand. And if there is early signs of hearing loss that's identified, then you can, you know, you can go through the right motions about getting proper he hearing protection, earmuffs, um, limiting the amount of power tool use you use, or maybe doing it outside instead of inside. These are some things that can help to minimise the, the impact of the damage that those noisy, well, the noise exposure can do to you. I admit to having a particular concern or phobia about this. Obviously, audio is my life. My ears are everything in the line of work that I do. But I've also spent 25 years being a sports commentator. And I can remember in particular when... Australia beat Uruguay and went to the World Cup, I was on the sideline and far from being able to protect yourself with earmuffs, it's the exact opposite. The louder the crowd roars, the louder you have to turn up the audio in your ears in order to be able to continue broadcasting. And my ears rang for a week after that. Wow. Well, that's um, that's that's certainly a, an indication that there's there's been some damage done at the time. Now, if the damage is you know, sort of a one-off, you might have been lucky to to escape without any ongoing effects, but, um, you know, and there may have been, you know, a temporary hearing loss, which, which the ear can either partially or fully recover from. But if you're having to do that week after week after week, then that's when that damage adds up. And, um, you know, having to turn up the, the, the levels in your ears to overcome being able to hear over the crowd, that's, you know, mm. that's where the, the damaging levels come through. And, uh, and, and that's where, yeah, the, the permanent uh, issues start from. You're at the edge of describing it with that answer. What actually happens in the course of hearing loss anatomically? Anatomically. So it, it basically comes down to that the nerve endings inside the inner ear die off. Um, they get bashed around by the noise. The noise is high, high amplitude energy that goes through the the, the middle ear and then gets transmitted to the, the organ in the inner ear um, and the nerve endings just can't sustain the, the repeated damage. It's like um, 
it's like you know, many, well, it was a few years back when there was the, the cyclones that came through Queensland and, and just belted the bejesus out of all of the banana trees. So, you know, it's it's the this, this similar kind of thing where you've got a very high, high impact damaging impulse coming through and then knocks over those nerve endings. And, you know, the banana trees grow back, but the nerve endings don't. We will get to what the potential solutions or how that problem can be mitigated in a moment. But when somebody reports suspected hearing loss, what does that look like? How do I know that things might be not as good as they could be? It's usually uh, the reliance is on um, filling in the gaps using your other senses. So when you can't hear as clearly, and typically it's a clarity of hearing issue that that is the, the first thing that comes up. So, you know, coming coming back to the comments where people complain about everybody else not, not speaking clearly again, um, if the clarity is not there, people will will have to rely on uh, lip reading. So facing you will be a lot easier than if the, you're calling if you're speaking from another room. Um, if there's a bit of background noise present, that can make it very difficult to hear clearly. Um, so these are the, the, the sort of the behaviours that um, that we see in people who have got early early onset here or early levels of hearing loss, and they'll you know they might turn on lights so that they can see their wife speaking, um, you know, if, if they're in the bedroom or they're, they're going up for a, a cup of tea or something, they, they may see better in a well-lit area and therefore hear better because they can see the, the words being made on the lips easier. Um, they may avoid noisy places because it's just too difficult to hear their, you know, their partner or their family in them. They may, as you've mentioned earlier, they may just, vague out at a, a family lunch or a family dinner where it, there's too many conversations going on and they just are unable to participate because they've lost the thread of the conversation. And, um, and it's very, very hard work to, to catch up and fill in the gaps, especially when there's multiple conversations going on. Um, they may be using the, the, the captions on the TV because those Scottish accents are just into, you know, they're, they're even more difficult now than they ever, ever were in the past. All of those compensatory behaviours, you know, the, the trying to fill in the gaps in other ways where the hearing is not not helping is uh, is what people tend to do early on. So, if if that's something that's been noticed by you know you or maybe your, your partner or your family, um, that would be a, a, an indicator to go and get your hearing checked out. It's a particularly frustrating problem as well. Is it not, Dom? Because, well, we've all had that experience of where you're trying to see a street address, you know, you're in an unfamiliar place and you turn the radio down so that you can concentrate, right? That idea that that you're working so hard all the time to decipher what is going on around you must be at best exhausting or at worst really irritating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, there's only a a certain amount of, what, what they call cognitive resources. So the brain can only do so many things at once. And, you know, males as well aren't particularly good at multitasking. So we do <laughs> we do need to um, assign the, the limited uh, resources that we have to looking at a street sign or following that conversation. Or if somebody's called out your name, where do they come from? And, and if you're in the middle of something else, you just may flat out not hear them. So... You know your your opening line where your wife said the other day you weren't even listening just now. That's that's a a very very good uh, line to use because it's it's people can just vague out and they will not be uh, aware that people are speaking to them because their their resources their their brain power is going elsewhere. Rob, 
With many of the issues that we discuss here on Ask the Doc, the default position is go and raise it with your GP. But I know I got a hearing test the last time I got my eyes tested at one of those uh, optometry operations. Is the GP well positioned to help you with these problems? I think there'd be variability, uh, if you like, with the familiarity and the comfort with which uh, a general practitioner might want to assess hearing, and I would imagine, and uh, Dominic could tell us more, they'd go directly, uh, say, well, you need to go and have your hearing tested by somebody who has all the equipment, because it's, you know, there's fancy stuff involved. It's not something you can do with a tuning fork and whatever. Uh, it needs to be done properly. So I think GPs would be very willing to hand off very quickly to have a proper assessment done by professionals. Yeah, I agree. I think um, a, a GPs will have a good idea about the audiologists that are good in their local area. So um, unfortunately, there's there's a, a couple of places that are around where they do the clinic spaces are more geared as retail spaces. So they'll test your hearing and then tell you you need to get hearing aids straight away. Now, it, it often takes a little bit of time for you to accept the fact that there is a hearing problem and that, and you need to think about what you're wanting to do about uh, whether hearing aids are something you'd be happy to wear, whether you could wear that, whether whether your family is going to um, support you in that because it's, it is a big step. It's a big, um, a big thing to do to, to commit to wearing hearing aids. If you do have a, a hearing loss that would benefit from having hearing aids, then you basically need to wear the hearing aids I tell my my clients, you need to wear them, you know, 10 to 12 hours every day. Dom, when you say hearing aids, I'm prepared to bet the vast majority of people are thinking about little Billy who was in grade four who got teased mercilessly for those massive pink things that hung off the side of his head. That is not the general modern hearing aid reality. Absolutely far from it. So those beige bananas that used to be um, yeah, worn, they, they, they don't make them anymore. Um, the... You know, and the old body body worn hearing aid that Uncle Arthur had, um, you know, they they don't make those anymore. So <laughs> I'd forgotten about those, but they were particularly horrific, weren't they? They were. I mean, that they they needed a, a hell of a lot of amplification. They needed a big battery, and you know that was what the electronics, you know, dictated the size of the hearing aid needed to be to to provide that much amplification. But nowadays, you know, they are all going to be. Uh, basically smaller than the the smallest joint of your little finger and they'll be usually very discreet there'll be a part that will sit on top of the ear ordinarily and a little bit that feeds the sound into the ear they will be able to connect up via bluetooth to you know all of your devices you can you know have phone calls you've got remote control um, access through this they are absolute cutting edge state-of-the-art really nicely looking devices. There are some that look better than others, um, but they're, they're small, they're lightweight, they're comfortable. They've, they're all moving towards being uh, rechargeable. So you don't have to fiddle around with little batteries and lose them under the fridge. They're much more user-friendly and discreet and, and much more functional than they ever have been. So it's um, it, it shouldn't be something that you, are pushing off because of the cosmetics because the cosmetics is really it's not so much of an issue anymore we, we get people coming in who are you know weeks away from divorce because the husband just does not 
listen and, and cannot listen it will cannot hear there's always a distinction between being able to listen and being able to hear and um you know there's the selective hearing which all males will have and you know i think that's somewhere on our y chromosome um, it's, it's an important <laughs> weapon in any arsenal right? <laughs> yeah, solidarity boys <laughs> um so that's something that will always be there but we you know, we do see people coming in who whose relationship is under such strain that the wife's bags are packed. And, you know, this is not a not a joke. They are packed and the the hearing aids is really the the, the last line of defense. And it saves marriages. It does. So they do make differences. It it's it's it takes time. It takes it, there is hard work involved in getting everything right. But it is hard work well worth doing and the benefits are are clear they they really do um what they're set out to do dom what one thing would you like all the shedders listening to this to take from today's conversation if there are any concerns about hearing if they think that they've done any of the things that we've you know discussed so far go and get your hearing checked um be, be upfront with the person that you're speaking to. If you're if you're just wanting to get some information about your hearing, make it clear that that's all you're interested in. There may be some uh, people out there who th- then say, "Oh, you need to have these hearing aids." Take some time for it to set uh, to sink in. Don't put it off for years and years and years. But um, maybe give, take a couple of months just to digest that information and get used to the idea about what you need to do about it. Um, talk to your family, involve them in the process, and um, be prepared to put in a little bit of extra hard work when time comes to get to get the hearing aids because it will change your life and it's something that will um, will enrich and, and make your life easier and better and not just for you but also for, for all of those around you. So your, your partner, your kids, grandkids, all those people who want to be able to talk to you easily uh, and have – may have said, oh, don't worry about it if you've asked for a repeat or two. If they say it doesn't matter, and obviously it does matter because they've said it several times and it matters to you, but you need to be able to hear it in the first or second go. So that's um, that's that, that's important to remember. There is, is hard work involved in getting it all right, both on, on your part and also with the audiologist who will be um, working with you and getting the, the hearing aid set up properly. And imagine how amazing the shed wireless is going to sound. Exactly. Dominic, I've got a, a comment, a question for you. I mean, a lot of us have got children and grandchildren, and we're sure we have both visual issues and hearing issues as we get older, and some of them are preventable, as you've been indicating. The message that we should be passing to in a sincere way to our children, to our grandchildren about protecting their hearing. I see a lot of people with these headphones on, blasting themselves point blank and the, and the like. I mean, these must surely be uh, behaviours that need to be brought to people's attention. They may just not realise what they're doing. What's your thought about what we should be telling our children and grandchildren to care for themselves? Oh, it's 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 a very important point that you've raised, Rob. I think um, it, when you're young, you're invincible, and you know you you don't you don't necessarily uh, see the effects of your youth <laughs> until you're older. Um, and so, with educating kids and grandkids uh, about you know safe listening and making sure that they're 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 not blasting their ears with headphones. Um, so, I mean, some of the head there's there's a couple of things that have happened over the last 10, 15 years, and it's 
there's been a, a sort of, I suppose, a fashion change in hearing uh, or listening where uh, people have gone from having sort of the, the little white buds in the ears, which would have to be turned up incredibly loud to hear over the train noise or the crowd. Um, people are now using larger headphones and, and some of those now have actually got um, active and passive noise cancellation in it. So while they're wearing the headphones more, they actually may be wearing them at safer levels. So that means that they, they may not be doing so much damage. But if you can, you know, if somebody not with wearing the, the, the headphones in their ears can hear what's going in the ears, then that's generally playing at a, at a damaging level. Um, I think that's, that's something that, that uh, needs to be raised with the, 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 the child, the, the kids or the grandkids. And, you know, kids are always going to do what they think is, well, they'll always listen to music because that's what they enjoy doing. But maybe you could also have a conversation with them about, well, maybe, maybe we get some headphones that are going to be able to be played at a safe level. And there are some that are out there that have got um, limiting levels on them. So they can't be played above a particular decibel value for, um, for any period of time. So that's, and they're not they're not inexpensive, but they certainly not uh, they're not super expensive either. So that that's a, a certainly a very good investment in in um, protecting young ones' hearing, and they can still you know enjoy the, the quality of sound, but just at a safer level. Um, it's it's a health awareness issue, and it's something that we do have to remind people about. And we do you know we do see children, we see teenagers who have who've got noise induced hearing loss because they have spent great deals of time listening to music at loud levels. You know, they're 15 year olds who have got hearing of a, of a 50, well, let's say a 75 year old. Very often, Rob, we have to talk about quite embarrassing stuff here. I can't see any embarrassment coming out of this episode. This is just a pure quality of life issue. Absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not just for you, for the people who love yeah, you. Yeah, for all of us, yeah. The only embarrassing thing is sometimes the amount of wax we pull out of people's ears when we're, uh, we're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other podcast right there. <laughs> Dominic Power, audiologist at the University of Melbourne, thank you so much for being on the team this week. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Rob. Oh, thank you, Dominic, very much. Thank you so much, as always, our Shed Wireless resident medic professor, Rob McLaughlin from Healthy Mail. Thank you, sir. Uh, pleasure. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but thanks to everybody who has been in touch via our email address, theshedwireless at menshed.net. Jeff Fennick's fabulous interview on the last episode prompted a great deal of correspondence on Facebook. John Elliott from Singleton Men's Shed wrote, great to have the mauler on board, a great Aussie champ. Also heard via email from John Podger, the secretary of the Belgrave Men's Shed Incorporated, says, hi, wireless team. Further to this episode, as Secretary of the Belgrave Men's Shed, I can report that I do not have a piece of pig in my chest, but a piece of cow. Why would he say that? Well, you really should go and listen to the Jeff Fennick episode if you haven't, because part of the discussion is that after a heart scare last year, Jeff Fennick 
with the heart as big as Farlap, actually has a piece of pig in his chest. Referencing that, let's go back to what John was telling us. He says, how come I have a piece of cow? In conjunction with a sextuple cardiac bypass graft operation, I had a heart valve replaced by an artificial one made from cow. Were there problems? Well, not from fear of what the outcome may be, but coping with both the recovery from this surgery and the continuing bladder problems, re-prostate cancer, he wouldn't do a full prostatectomy. Prostatectomy? I think that's how you say it, because he thought my 79-year-old body would not cope. So what did I have instead? You have to roll with the punches, however hard they fall and cope accordingly. Sharing the experiences with your shed helps, but it's difficult during the COVID-19 lockdown. Good points, well made, mate, and hopefully by you being able to relate to Jeff Fennick's experience and uh, other things that you're hearing here on the Shed Wireless, we are mitigating that isolation ever so slightly. And this from Gavin at Mount Perry Men's Shed in Queensland via email. Many thanks to the AMSA team for all you do. I'm really enjoying the Shed Wireless podcast, doing my best to convince others in the shed to abandon their stone tablets in favour of a more modern version that can subscribe to the podcast. That's excellent news. That's great. Isn't it? It is. It is. It is. Can't help but feel like, you know, once upon a time there were those who said uh, those bloody noisy cars will never replace a horse and cart, and yet we couldn't do without them now. So <laughs> I'm a bit hesitant to dive headfirst into every new bit of technology that comes along as well, but some of it pays a handsome dividend. So listen to Gavin and the team up there. Nice to hear from you, Gavin. And also good to hear from Belgrave, and uh, and uh, all the best with that, mate. Um, sounds like no bull to me, uh, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. You can correspond anytime. As you can see, the bar isn't very high, so correspond at any time with Shed Wireless at medshed.net. And while you're at it, you can find the Australian Men's Shed Association on Facebook for a great way to connect with other shedders, have a chat, and get the goss first and fast. Thanks to Sam Kekovich, to our friends in the US shedding movement for being our shed in the spotlight, Glenn Sears and Mark Winston, Professor Rob McLaughlin and Dominic Powers, Stuart Rip, David Helmers, Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team. And, of course, to you, Paul Sladden. Thank you for being with us as always. No worries, mate. I think I'll go and throw a lamb chop on the barbie. What a superb idea. Keep Sam in that luxurious lifestyle to which he's become accustomed. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to our ever-growing band of listeners and evangelists who are spreading the word like Gavin. All about the Shed Wireless. Thanks all. See you next episode. Cheerio. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates even if they've never seen a shed through email, newsletters, word of mouth ring a mate and give him the tip maybe your wife might even like it we love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at mensshed.net or just head to the AMSA website www.mensshed.org and see what's going on with the shed online while you're there 
It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed. Mm-hmm.